Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Good morning. Welcome to this session on Living in the Now. My name is David. I am a sexaholic. I will be partly co-facilitating this session with... Ken. Ken. Jay. Each of us will share our recovery on this topic, then we'll take time to answer questions. Questions will be mostly taken from the Ask It basket. We have, um, I think it's the Ask It table, actually. Uh, we have cards and pens over here, and it'll help if you would write your question out and put it on the table. Um, in the spirit of Fifth Tradition to carry the message, this is a recorded session. The recording equipment will not be turned off during the session. We ask that you please silence all cell phones. After a moment of silence, would you please join with us in the serenity prayer? Serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. They'll not mine be done. Sexaholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other. They may solve their common problem and help others to recover. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop lusting and become sexually sober. There are no dues or fees for SA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. SA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution, does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sexually sober and help others to achieve sexual sobriety. And uh, even though he didn't want to go first, Ken has volunteered to go first. Do what you don't want to do most. My name is Ken. I am a sexaholic. By the grace of God. Thank you. My name is Ken J. I am a sexaholic. By the grace of God and through this program and the help of a sponsor of Loving and Caring Community of Fellowship, I have been sober since December of 07. Um, living in the now, what does it mean? Um, well, it's kind of a terrible story to tell, but I'm going to tell it. Is it uh, I had an acting out partner who was an AA, and she gave me, gave me a book on living in the now. Of course, it was a long time ago, and, it, and it's now come back to be you know, kind of interesting to have. But what we're talking about, what are we talking about? Well, there is this moment, and it's gone. It's, that moment's gone. Now, we're, another moment. Everything is constantly changing, as Harvey said yesterday in the meditation thing. There's the future, there's the present, and there's the past. All I have is right this minute, right here, right now. And everything else is out of my control. I do not get edit rights on the past. I'd love to, but I don't. And I've proven to myself repeatedly I am not in control of the future. And I've since turned that over to God's responsibility. Um, In my addiction, in my active uh, part of my addiction, 
I was, uh, I kept score. And so I kept, I had resentments, it says in the big book, is our number one problem. And I was a very good person on resentments. Uh, my mother taught me well. She taught me, when she was in the latter stages of her life, she was telling me about a resentment that was literally 70 years old. And it was like it was yesterday. You know? and, I, and that's the way I am. I, I recall, I kept, I kept a journal on my wife's transgressions against me, hence my uh, you know, uh, resentments. I mean, it was kind of sick if you think about it. it. It was sick. It was sick. I was sick when I did it. Um, you know, I used that to justify, used that to solidify, and used that to make myself feel better. But the future, my, my projection was actually worse than that, in that I always wanted things to be perfect. And if it wasn't perfect, I couldn't do it. I mean, it's like... I make furniture as a hobby, and so I build things. I, actually, I don't make furniture. I assemble furniture. God makes the furniture. I just put the parts together. And uh, But if I can't do it perfectly, I get locked up. I'm unable to take the actions. I'm literally unable to, to take an action. Um, you know, I wanted to take my wife to France uh, for a, a second honeymoon. This was before recovery. But I couldn't do it because I couldn't book the perfect first class flight and I couldn't at the perfect time and I couldn't. So I never did it. You know, it just kept, it kept going away. Uh, someone came to my house one time and I'd made a, I'd assembled some wood into a, a thing and, and it, he says, uh, that's nice. I said, well, it's not good enough. I was going to burn it. He said, why not? Why? Because I said, it's not perfect. <laughs> it's like, well, give it to me. I don't burn it. You know, but, you know, that's sort of the kind of mentality I had. It, that perfectionism was, uh, it, it's, it strangled me, and it prevented me from doing a lot. So I've since learned that it's okay not to be perfect, and I've since learned that good is good enough sometimes, and I, I've, I've released that from my, my way of life. Um, I just completed a, a piece of furniture I started 20 years ago. Now, I don't work full-time at it, but under any measure... That's a ridiculous amount of time. Okay. I mean, I obsessed over it for literally years. How do I build this perfectly? How do I do this? It's got carving on it. And the carving is a lot like art. It's not, that's with much of furniture making, it's a craft. There's a skill set and you do this thing and it's pretty precise. Carving, it's like a painting. It's like, well, you could have put another stroke here or you could put another stroke there. You could have added a little color here. And carving is exactly that same way. So I fixated on that for years and I did dozens of samples, of carvings, until I got it. But eventually I got to pretty good, and I looked at it and I go, you know what, I'm 72. If I don't finish this thing pretty soon, it's not going to get done. And so I said, okay, it's good enough, and I let it go. So that was one of, the, one of those situations where I just had to let it go and move on. Today, I live more and more in the now, and the way I do it, is primarily through the serenity prayer. We just pray. God, there is a God, and it isn't me. Grant me the serenity. Grant me peace to accept the things I cannot change. I can't change the past, and I certainly can't control the future. You know, and you know, and, the, and, the, and to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change I can't things I can't. I can change my attitude and acknowledge that I can't make a perfect piece of furniture, and I can't produce a perfect vacation for my wife, 
And by the way, we did go to France uh, in 2014. We had a wonderful time, a great experience, and we went up to the uh, the, the uh, Notre Dame and walked to the top, and we just it was an important part of our recovery in our marriage. So I've learned to accept that, and a serenity prayer does it. And one of the things that helps me a lot, and I want to try to give you some tools, I t- share with you the tools I used. When in doubt, do the next right thing. And, and it, I, I sweep the house, I clean up stuff, I sit stuff away, I go to my shop and organize it a little bit, take the dog for a walk, I do whatever it is that I know won't be bad. I mean, it's, it may not be the best thing, but it's something I need to do. Action, action for others. I try to do anonymous service for my wife. I don't tell her when I do things. If she figures it out, that's okay. I do a lot of things that she doesn't really know I've done, and that's okay. And I tell people... God and I are the only two that know it. I don't tell my sponsor. I don't tell anybody else. I certainly don't tell her. But just surrendering that need to be in control. You know, surrender and acceptance. Surrender and acceptance. The serenity prayer. Um, I am an obsessive collector of stuff, you know, and and, uh, I have enough wood in my basement to build furniture for the next 150 years. (laughs) I don't think I'm going to use it all up, <laughs> but that's what I am. And, and what I did is I saved the best for another day. I'm 72. There are no more. I mean, right now I use the best I got, you know, and there's a great story about, you know, a fellow, his wife died and talking about she always kept, you know, sometimes this is my best underwear, my negligee. I'm going to save that for a special case. Today's a special occasion. Today's the only day I got. This moment's the only one I got. And I do that today. I use the best stuff I have when I build things. I tell my wife, we're, we're going to do this. and We're going on a trip or something. And it's, um, she's like, well, we need to save the money. I said, no, we don't. You know, we, we're not destitute. We can, afford, we can afford to indulge ourselves and do what's good for us right this minute. So, you know, I've made peace with my past. I've surrendered my resentments. I've acknowledged the mistakes I've made. I've made amends for those where I've harmed others. And I've learned from those, and those those things made me the person I am today. I am the sum total of everything that's happened to me in my life. But I don't have to live those things again and again. And I let them go, and that's that's where they are at. So I, the the right here right here right now mantra is is really so good because it, this is it. And so. Um, just doing the next right thing, as I mentioned before. Unfortunately, too many people in my life around me have died uh, in the past 10 years, and many of them not necessarily age-related issues, um, in the blink of an eye. You know, it's the old adage, in the blink of an eye. You know, you know we, hear, we hear things last night that we didn't want to hear, you know, and uh, uh, it happens. And so it, it, we have to keep things in perspective. All You know, take, embrace life. Take it for all it's worth. Right now, don't save it up for the future. One of the other ways that I live in the now is to be present. And I was talking to a friend, a sponsor the other day. He said, be present and be receptive. Willings, in other words, willingness. And we say it in the material, you know, being willing to, to do whatever is necessary, be willing to, to take on, um, you know, whatever God brings us. And being present for me is... And, and I did this in my addiction, is that my wife would be talking with me and I would be texting or email one of my acting out partners. You know, that's 
good plan, you know. And so, uh, uh, or if, if she was talking, I wouldn't be paying attention. I'd watching the news, or I was reading newspaper, whatever. Now, if my wife starts talking to me, whatever I'm doing, I put it down, turn it over, turn off the phone. What it doesn't matter what it is. You have my undivided attention. And it doesn't matter what she's talking about. She can talk about it's an article in the newspaper or something's going on with the dog. Because it was like I've heard it said before, God talks to us every chance we give him. And it comes from people we don't know or expect. And if I'm not paying attention, I'm not going to hear it. So it's important for me to be right here right now. And every time you speak, you know, I need to be focused on what you say. There's a great A talker uh, talk that I heard one time where the guy's talking. Old timer takes a newcomer into a meeting and they go in and there's some really drunk person literally and he's blabbling and, and, and the old timer comes out and says, uh, what would you think of our meeting? And he says, well, I didn't pay attention to that guy. And, and the old timer goes, well, I did because I never know when God's going to say something through one of us. And I need to be there listening. And I, we've got people in our meeting, and I, like, I pull my hair out when they start sharing. But I, I pay attention to them, even though I don't want to listen to them, because they might say And they do often say something I need to hear. Be present and be receptive. That's important for me. Um, and take every action seriously, deliberately, on purpose. I need to be accountable for my behavior. I don't want to be, I don't want to slight you. I don't want to be so engaged in a phone conversation when you come up to me and, and offer to shake my hand. I sort of, yeah, it's sort of half paying attention. I need to ask for forgiveness on the phone and say, because you're right here right now. You know, the phone's somewhere else. I don't know where it is. Um, so, and then, and then the next, the last thing which ties to things, I avoid projecting into the future. I, I make plans and God does what he does. You know, and it comes out the right way every time. And it's always better than my plans. And left to my own devices, you know, I would be really screwed up. I tell people, if life were fair, I'd live under a bridge, eat out of a dumpster, and be alone. That would be fair. You know, but God's gracious, gracious and he's granted me so much that I do not deserve. But as a result, I look for every opportunity to be of service. We just had an opportunity where... We were we had our pan, piano. We, we no longer need to because that piece of furniture that I assembled is going to go into the spot that's sitting, and it's hard to get rid of a piano today. But so I was trying to find the right place, and so I offered it to my neighbor across the street, and she says, "Oh my God, I can't believe you did this." It says a good friend of my son from school, his the mother is on her own. The father walked out on him, left her high and dry. She's moving into a new facility. They have a daughter who just only thing she wanted for Christmas was a piano. And I said, she's got one. You know, be there, be present. So with that, I will turn it over to David. Thanks, Ken. That's for you. My name is David. I am a sexaholic. My sobriety date is August 2nd, 1988, for which I can... Never be sufficiently grateful. And living in the now um, is, <laughs> there's a, a line, I'll, I'll probably read some of it in a little bit, um, in the step 11 and the 12 and 12 that says, oh, shucks, that just, I don't remember how exactly they put it. Oh, I turned the page on me. Um, but um, that sounds really silly. And living in the now sounds kind of woo-woo at one level. Um, and yet... Um, in terms of what works, as Ken was just sharing, actually, um, it's exactly the 
solution. And, and we start off in the problem, and I thought that's where maybe I would start. I chose, I'm choosing to start right now. Uh, many of us felt inadequate, unworthy, alone, and afraid. Our insides never matched what we saw on the outsides of others. So from the very beginning in the problem, we're not where we are. We're not in our own bodies. We're not in our own histories. We're not in, in relationship to other people. Uh, I'm totally preoccupied. I certainly identify with all of this, by the way. Uh, I'm preoccupied. We are preoccupied with being inadequate, unworthy, alone, and afraid. I mean, we're not matching. Uh, and as Clancy said, we compare, uh, Clancy, the AA speaker, uh, we compare our inside raw meat to other people's outside polished defenses, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of polished defenses. And the one thing we know for sure is we're going to lose. Early on, we came to feel disconnected from parents, from peers, from ourselves. We tuned out with fantasy and masturbation. Amen. We plugged in by drinking in the pictures, the images, pursuing the objects of our fantasies we lusted and wanted to be lusted after. My sponsor, Jess, defined lust as asking the world to be different than the way God's providing it at that moment. And in that sense, we lusted and wanted to be lusted after is anything but living in the now, anything but in the present, any place that's other than where God has actually put me. And that first part of that paragraph is the description of where the kinds of places I'll put myself disconnected from everybody around me. I certainly identify with that. Loneliness was really so much of a, probably on the inside, the most common uh, emotion that I was struggling with uh, before I came into this program. Fantasy, tuned out with fantasy, masturbation, as I said, amen, when I read it. Um, constantly leaving the present, drinking in the pictures, the images, pursuing the objects of our fantasies. And the objects were just part of the fantasies. I mean, they may or may not be actual real people, um, but they uh, became real in my life because they were somewhere where I wasn't. We became true addicts, sex with self, promiscuity, adultery, dependency relationships, and more fantasies. Again, um, guys call me up and, and say, well, I'm thinking of doing this behavior. Uh, and if they're married, I, I usually say the same thing. That's fine. I think that's great. Just clear it with your wife first. Um, it usually changes the conversation anyway. Uh, sex with self, promiscuity, adultery, dependence, relations, more fantasy. Again, all leaving the now. We got it through the eyes. We bought it. We sold it. We traded it. We gave it away. We were addicted to the intrigue, the tease, the forbidden. The only way we knew to be do it was to be free of it, was to do it, connect with me and make me whole. We cried with outstretched arms. Lusting after the big fix, we gave away our power to others. And all of that is is just a description of not being anywhere but where I am. You know, not only asking the world to be different than the way God's providing it, just plunging into it and wallowing in it. And over time, as I got a lot of practice, and people say, well, I, I didn't act out so uh, seriously until I came to meetings and heard what other people are doing. Um, and, you know, I'm sure that's true. Um, it's also irrelevant because there's nothing anybody shares in a media that in a meeting that isn't available on on some streaming thing or some piece of uh, literature or you know many other places. Uh, we just probably <laughs> probably the one thing we're doing in a meeting is paying attention. Um, anyway, that's ironic, isn't it? Um, by the way, this is an aside, uh, but it is irrelevant to living in the now. I hadn't thought of it that way until just the second. Um, one of the things that being in an essay meeting teaches me anyway, and perhaps you, um, is how to listen to people. 
because uh, I spend most of the meeting not talking. And uh, and then, as Ken just said, and it's exactly what I, I do for myself, um, there's going to be one person who says the one thing I need to hear, and I better be paying attention. And so uh, that's my exercise, is what I was practicing as Ken was talking, um, to uh, be uh, present so I can hear that thing and, and uh, benefit from whatever it is I'm supposed to hear at that moment. This produced guilt, self-hatred, remorse, emptiness, and pain. We are driven ever inward, away from reality, away from love, lost inside ourselves. Again, all leaving the now. And um, I'm coming up on this next paragraph, working my way, because this is the one my sponsor, Jess, used to really dump on. Our habit made true intimacy impossible. We could never know real union with another because we were addicted to the unreal. We went for the chemistry that... The connection that had the magic, amen, oh, do I recognize that magic? And it was that magic, that fantasy magic, as a four-year-old and on, uh, that attracted me first. It wasn't sexual per se. I mean, for one thing, I was four years old. Um, At the same time, though, that that's what I wanted. Not only did I want to not be where I was, I wanted the magic that um, produced it. Uh, I added uh, hallucinations to my list of... uh, uh, acting out things um, and part of my disease um, because I used to uh, um, I would uh, on a night when there was a moon out I would go up I would go outside and bounce my voice off the moon to uh, so a woman in the, that I was having an affair with could hear it um, but that wasn't quite as bad as the other thing I used to do all over Nashville as a matter of fact um, if there was a billboard with a woman on it and a skirt I would go up and try to look up her skirt um, <clears throat> so I, I was pretty nuts. Um, I thought my credentials are okay. And um, we went for the connection that had the magic because, and this is where Jess would really drill down, because it bypassed intimacy and true union. Fantasy corrupted the real lust, killed love. He said, David, we're terrified of intimacy. We're terrified of real union. And the problem with living in the now is I'm going to be confronted with that stuff. The, the, the possibility of intimacy and intimacy can be pulled apart into me see that I can allow another person into me see intimacy and 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 vice versa see into them and true union with another and uh, and he said we're just terrified of that no wonder we engage in all this stuff first addicts then love cripples we took from others to fill up what was lacking in ourselves conning ourselves time and again that the next one would save us, we were really losing our lives. And the last uh, phrase there, we were really losing our lives. I find in general in Sexaholics Anonymous and and other fellowships that I've gone to meetings in, uh, most addicts, if they stick around, are pretty comfortable acknowledging that they're powerless uh, over lust or whatever else. and where we tend to get a little quieter and not quite so verbal uh, is over the unmanageability. Because there's a part of my brain that still says, even to this moment, I'm sure, I can handle it. And I tell everybody the same thing. I don't know what they get out of it. I just know I need to say it because it's important for me. And that is, I can handle it are the four most dangerous words that come into my head. Because that's what will set me off. And, and uh, we talk, you know, an AA has handed us... Uh, if we don't take the first drink, we don't have to worry about anything else. And uh, and for us, uh, the first drink is, that's the first drink. I can handle it. And the problem with the first drink is it's probably fine. 
we probably can handle it, quote-unquote. And then our brain says, aha! And that's the opening to the next drink, of course, or the next panic or the next resentment or the next whatever. Um, the, um, the 11th step, um, I wanted to talk about that. Where did I uh, close my page up here? And Oh, there it is. Um, first of all, there is a laminated sheet up here with prayers on it. And if you happen to see this, um, there's one here that says the 11th step prayer, and I just would like to go on record. It is not the 11th step prayer. It's actually a prayer from another religious tradition, which is fine, but it's not the one that's in the, <laughs> in the 11th step. And the one that's in the 11th step, in my humble opinion, is a much better version. So um, I'm glad uh, that uh, it kind of forced me to turn to the book, which I had it memorized, so, but it's always better to read. Um, and the 11th step prayer um, is um, totally an exercise in learning how to live in the now, how to stay in the now. Uh, Lord, make me a channel of thy peace. And the image that I have in my head is I have these channels that are full of sludge uh, inside my being, emotional sludge, intellectual, physical sludge, whatever it is. Um, and... Um, and when I start this prayer, Lord, make me a channel of thy peace, um, it's kind of like opening up an irrigation canal. I'm, I'm allowing uh, some energy to flow through and clear out some of the sludge. It's always a nice feeling. I, I love doing the prayer. That where there's hatred, I may bring love. And, and this whole rest of the prayer engages in this, so I'll just uh, digress very slightly, sh- briefly here. Um, living in the now is a constant challenge, especially when I'm trying to do it, and, and I'm not in a meeting or not talking to someone that can help me see myself. Um, where there's hatred, I may bring love is a good example of what I call my rule of 180 degrees. And that is, and that's not original with me. Uh, I've heard it on uh, many other uh, recordings. Um, and I just figure out exactly what I want to do. I mean, the, the right answer, the right choice, the right set of words. And then if I say the exact opposite, it'll be fine. Um, <laughs> And the rule of 180 is, I do it enough now that it's actually habitual. I don't really have to think it through um, when I'm doing it. At the same time, I I do need to stay aware of it uh, because um, I will fool myself. I'll start saying I can handle it uh, in that my intuitive uh, feeling is, is God's message to me on the inside. And uh, that's a bunch of uh, crap. So that's where the sludge comes in. Anyway, that where there's wrong, I may bring the spirit of... So you'll hear the rule of 180 in all of these. That where there's wrong, I may bring the spirit of forgiveness. Where there's discord, I may bring harmony. And and I'll, I'll read more of it in a second, but I need my hands. <laughs> uh, every cell in our body, from the, the most basic chemical reaction in our cells, inside of the cells, and then in the cell itself as a whole, and then the cell is a part of other groups of cells and tissues and organs and everything in our being. And then this goes all the way into our consciousness and our spiritual being. Everything in our being is based on balance, that that we go this way, we go that way, every reaction and and like when we take medications, when someone prescribes a medication for us, it's to try to restore something that's out of balance. Uh, and and we do that spiritually, physically, emotionally, and spiritually, as we say in our program. 
and and everything is geared. And if we're out of balance, our entire being, whether we are conscious of it or not, doesn't make any difference at all. Our entire being is focused on getting back into balance because that's the only safe place for us. And so we're in this constant motion. I tell people it's very similar to what we when someone's learning to drive a car, one of the things we have to learn to do is keep moving the steering wheel just a tiny bit, not big bits. The, the, usually people start with big bits, and it's kind of unnerving. It's hard on the driver's ed instructors. And and then it falls down to just staying in balance. Um, and you probably have all heard this thing, no matter how far down the recovery road I drive, it's still the same distance from the center line to the ditch. And, and again, uh, that's... Um, um, Staying in balance, staying in the middle of the road, uh, staying safe. And these um, rule of 180 and all of that is part of the staying in balance. And staying in balance is literally, physiologically, as I just said a little minute ago, how we stay in the present, how we stay alive, literally. Um, that where there is harmony, I may, where, there's, um, where there's discord, I may bring harmony. Where there's error, I may bring truth. Where there's doubt, I may bring faith. Where there's despair, I may bring hope. That where there's shadows, I may bring light. That where there's sadness, I may bring joy. Again, all of those opposites, 180. Lord, grant that I may seek rather to comfort than to be comforted. How many of us have wanted our partners, maybe our wives, our husbands, uh, to comfort me uh, when am I going to get what I need? I can't tell you the number of times guys open. They're really stupid when they say it because they know I'm going to land on them. Um, when am I going to get what I need? Well, when are you ever not going to get what you demand? Um, you know, um, Grant that I seek rather to comfort than to be comforted, to understand than to be understood, to love than to be loved. Again, all of those uh, learning how to stay in the present and be actually present to another purpose person. I tell... Um, Mostly I talk to guys, of course, I sponsor. And I say the thing we do that most, and I certainly do this, the thing we do that most annoys our wives, and they are totally appropriate to be annoyed by it, if not totally frustrated, is they share something with an emotional content. doesn't matter whether it's negative or positive, And we turn it into something about ourselves. I'm really upset. Well, I don't like it when you're upset with me. I don't like being criticized. I don't like the feeling inside me when you say that. And then we wonder why they don't, why do they repeat it again? Why, why don't they seem satisfied with how self-righteous I'm being in responding with the truth about myself? And uh, Anyway, it's tedious. It's hard being a wife. Um, Lord grant that I uh, read that. For it's by self-forgetting that one finds, it's by forgiving that one is forgiven. And my purpose in reading this whole prayer to you, partly just because I like it so much, is also to get to this last line, because uh, it's been so important to me. It's by dying that one awakens to eternal life. Amen. And it, it, and as it happens, the way I grew up um, and what was handed to me, uh, that those those two words, eternal life, didn't resonate for me in a useful way, or I would fight them anyway. And and I, I memorized the prayer a long, long time ago. Now I use it regularly, and um, and for the first few years, I would say it's for dying that one awakens to eternal life because that's what's in the prayer, <laughs> and and um, and I don't want to change any words. And then one day, uh, and this is like. 
over 25 years ago now, I realized that what's the one eternal thing I know? And the one eternal thing that I know right this moment is right now. There's never a shortage. There's an eternal supply of nows. I, and there's, there's no past. I can't, as Ed Ken said, we can't go back and edit it. There's no future. It hasn't happened yet. And so what I'm doing, I'm dying to the past and the future. And I'm learning how to stay in the one place I can be safe and grow in the present. And that's the eternal life, the now. And, and it opened the whole, well, that's not true. The prayer had opened up to me long before it finally brought the prayer to fruition in my, in my, I stopped fighting it at any level. And, and we cease fighting anything or anybody. Um, and I, and I was able to do that and very uh, gratefully so. I guess that's the last thing I'll share. Um, I think it's, I kind of tried to count once, uh, and I should probably be more systematic about this, but I think we cease fighting anything or anybody or that basic concept appears at least three or four times in the AA Big Book. Um, if it's in the White Book other than in a quotation, I don't recall it, but that doesn't make any difference. And maybe it is, and I'm just not aware. Um, and over time, uh, well, the first thing that happened was in Denver in about 2007, 2008, whenever that international was. I was just reading along in the AA Big Book, and maybe some of you, speaking of living in the now, have had this experience. Um, <clears throat> they don't talk a lot about it in AA, but they have a whole department in the uh, office there on 475 Riverside Drive that does nothing but change the AA Big Book on a regular basis. Uh, they put words in there that were not in there before. Um, and they do the same thing with the 12 and 12. They just, I don't, they're secretive about it, but I'll open up the book, I'll be reading along, and there's some stuff that's... So on page 103 in the AA Big Book, there's, they did that. And there's these italics, as a matter of fact. And the italics say alcohol was just a symbol. The bottle was just a symbol. And we cease fighting anything or anybody. We have to. And at that moment, those words in italics, they're on page 103, it's the end of the chapter two. I mean, it's not exactly subtle. Um, they were, they were, those words were there. I, they, of course, they were there all along. Um, they just finally got through to me. And um, and I hold on pretty equally to those both two sentences, the last two. We cease fighting anything or anybody. And and that's what Jess defined lust as, not asking the world, not accepting the world as God's actually providing it. Uh, and just to accept it as it is. As I was saying last night when we're making amends, uh, the two automatics almost always are holding on to something that's in the past and not accepting that someone is the way they are. And all of that is, we cease fighting anything or anybody. And then those three magic words, for me anyway, magic, we have to. It's not, there's no wiggle room in that. And that's what really probably struck me the most in Denver. And many times since, there's just, if I am willing to work this program, willing to go to any lengths to have what the others have had passing on to me, uh, I will cease fighting anything or anybody we have to. That is so counterintuitive. That is so much not how I 
I would tell you I was raised. Whether I was or not, I don't know. It's what I got out of it, though, uh, that I have to be ready to do battle. I was thinking of someone this morning who's a vibrator. He's constantly scanning and checking himself and the environment around him. And it's a difficult way to live. And, uh, and, and yet I spotted I got it. That's exactly me. I'm hyper-attentive, I'm hyper-alert, hyper-aware, and, and, um, and all of it's because I may have to fight, I may have to run. And, and instead, this program says, we cease fighting anything or anybody. We have to. And that's what living in the now means for me. And it's time for me to stop. So I will. I'd like to follow up on mine. I, uh, a couple of things David said triggered. One of the things that I struggled with in the past uh, was listening to someone talk and figuring out what I was going to say to what they said. And I've since learned to not do that. It's hard. It's not easy to do. But I've, I, So I, I recognize it so I can now at least attempt to deal with it. So I can honestly just listen, and especially if there's a, something of a debate uh, or a dis- disagreement. That ability to just... Turn off, just clean the slate, pull the eraser out, erase everything, and what is he saying? How is he saying it? What does it mean? Then I can formulate my response once I've listened to all of the, the discussion or whatever. And the other thing that, that's been a powerful tool in improving my marriage is that I've learned that my wife, when they've talked about sharing, my wife, when she shares with me, she's not looking for an answer. And I'm a fixer. And I need to fix problems. And give me a problem. I got something to do. I'm good. I'm happy. You know. But I've learned she will pour out her emotions and her concerns and her fears. And most of the times, I'll say, thank you for sharing, just like we do in the media. The program has taught me such good manners. You know? It really has. I don't presume to know what you want me to say. You know? And so I'll listen, and i say, well, that's really good. And if it's appropriate, I'll ask her, i say, is there... Any, would you want me to comment on what you said? And I do that with you when you talk with me, and I do that with my wife. I do that with everybody. I treat, I try to treat everybody the same, whether in this room, out of this room, or in my house. It, that you're all creatures of God, and you're all equally important to God, and I should treat you as such. But those were a couple of things that I'd overlooked, and I thought I would share. So you want me to answer that question? Okay. So David wanted me to answer this question. Uh, It says, you say you made peace with the past and resentments. How did you accomplish this? I did surrender the past to what it was. I made a conscious decision. I did my amends. First of all, I I mean, this didn't happen in week 12 of recovery. It didn't even happen after the ninth step amends. Over the course of time, I came to a place of peace where I accepted that everything I did had a purpose to bring me to where I was at that, this moment. And even the things that I do not treasure as good or important or valuable, they had an impact on me, and they've changed me in some way to be a, and what I believe to be a better person than I would have been had I not got the disease and got the solution. So it's through the serenity prayer and through acceptance that I've said, you know, this is what I did. I own it. You're not going to beat me up over it. I've already done that. You know, you can say, well, Ken, you, you, you cheated on your wife repeatedly. Yes, I did. And I've, I've made amends to that. And every day I get out of bed, 
I make living amends to my wife, and I make amends to those others that I've hurt. So once I've done, it's serenity prayer. Do what I can do. I've done what I can do. I did the amends. I'm taking the living amends. That's it. Nothing else I can do. And I, I'm at peace with that. And the, you know, the, the courage to change and the wisdom to know the difference. So, is that good enough? That's great. Um, if you do have a written question, just bring it up. The, the movement is not a problem on that. Um, <laughs> there was a thing I didn't read, and here's the question, and I'm going to read it. Uh, how do you balance planning for the future with living in the now? And uh, this was uh, in step 11 in the 12 and 12. Shuck says, somebody, this is nonsense. It isn't practical. It's talking about meditation. When such thoughts break in, we might recall a little ruefully how much story we used to set by imagination as we tried to create reality out of, and I'll change the language here, out of lust. Yes, we reveled in that sort of thinking, didn't we? And though sober nowadays, don't we often try to do much the same thing? Perhaps our trouble was not that we used our imagination. Perhaps the real trouble was our most total inability to point imagination toward the right objectives. There's nothing the matter with constructive imagination. This is the answer to the question. There's nothing the matter with all sound achievement rests upon it. After all, no one can build a house until first envisioning a plan for it. Well, meditation is like that, too. It helps envision our spiritual objective before we try to move toward it. So let's get back to that sunlit beach or the plains or the mountains, if you prefer. Um, planning for the future. Um, there are things, you know, I can make plans in the future. Um, I can have dreams. Bill talks about those, Bill Wilson. Um, and it's, um, and I, what I do, I do this in myself, hopefully, and I do it certainly with other people. Um, if it's a true plan, I will think about it only once. I may you know, modify it and think about it as a modified plan. That's fine. But still, uh, if I repeat, then my motive has changed from planning for the future or imagining the future or sort of mentally designing something, which I do a lot of. I'm very much like Ken in that respect, uh, to obsessing about it. And it took me, I will say, at least 20 years in this fellowship to realize <laughs> That when I was obsessing about something, thinking about something more than once, uh, what I was doing was engaging in magic. Remember how much I love magic. Um, engaging in magical thinking. If I think about something hard enough, long enough, in just the right way, I can change it. Now, when I say that out loud, I can hear myself saying, that's pretty nutty, David. <laughs> but in between my ears, it all seems very reasonable at the time. So what I listen for is the repeats. Um, if I'm starting to repeat something to myself, the only thing to do, it, it's the most fundamental recovery tool that you and I have, um, and that is to move my feet, uh, get away from wherever I am, literally just move my feet, get up and move, uh, walk, get on my knees, um, uh, do anything but continue doing what I'm doing. And, um, and that's all the repeats meet. Um, mean is that I just need to change. I'm, I'm starting to engage in magical thinking. And um, so planning is, if there's something to do today, to plan, fine. And if I'm obsessing about it, then I need to use the other tools. Um, I'll stop. You want to do that one? We can both share that. Uh, so the question is, what practical tools do you use on a regular moment-to-moment basis to keep bringing yourself back to the now, especially when your head is filled with crazy thinking. Well, my head's never filled with crazy thinking, I'm sure. (laughs) 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> well, as I said, I'm a liar, cheat, and theft, but still steal. So anyway, yes, how do I do that? I can remember one vivid example where I was uh, uh, the chair of the intergroup in, our, in Atlanta, and uh, the issue of the Cleveland clarification came up in a very contentious way, and I was dealt basically challenged in the environment. And what I did is two things. One is, first thing is, I, I, silence is an acceptable answer to any question. No is a complete sentence, according to my sponsor. Those are powerful reminders. So what I did when that came up is I closed my eyes. I prayed the serenity prayer to myself. And then open my eyes. Now I know when I get excited, I can feel it. I can feel it in my heart. I can feel it in my skin. You can feel it in the temperature. I can feel it in my face. I'm starting to flush. When I feel that going on, I need to stop. Time out. There's nothing. I'm not a doctor, so I'm not doing surgery, okay? So I can take a time out. So there's nothing I can't stop doing at any given time, uh, you know, obviously, but like, and take a break, close my eyes, and say the serenity prayer and bring myself back to the moment. And there's a great. A phrase that Al-Anon used. So what? So you're mad at me. So what? You don't like me. So what? You want to do it different than me. So? So what? You know, when I get done with it, there's very few things that happen in my life that I have control over, that I have an influence on, that are terribly important, other than getting out of bed and doing the next right thing but on a day-to-day basis a lot of stuff is like i get all worked up david talk about obsession which is really where i'm at with that kind of thing is let it go so who cares so what there was a dispute within the atlanta group that's in charge of planning for the um, international convention for next year and there was a dispute about the way the brochure was put together. And, and the co-chair of the thing came to me this morning. He says, Ken, I have, we have to pray. And he's, you know, he's so worried. It just, and I says, Paul, it's just a piece of paper. <laughs> it's not a legal contract. We're not bound by this thing. If we change it, it's okay. So let it go. So, so what? <laughs> That was great. Um, one of the most powerful tools, uh, pragmatically, and by the way, after this, if you want to, if someone has another card, bring it up. Otherwise, we'll just open it to the floor. We have a few more minutes. Um, one of the most powerful and simple ways to uh, get into the now is simply, as Ken just said, to be quiet. Um, when we, at the very beginning of this session, I, I was reading the text here and and it says, let's open with a serenity prayer. And I said, uh, after a moment of silence, let's do the serenity prayer. And for me, the purpose of the silence is exactly what the theme of this session is, which is to come into the now, to really take some breaths and simply be exactly where I am right now. Uh, yesterday, in talking about meditation, uh, the subject of mindfulness came up, which is popular now in human relations departments and stuff. It's great. And, and, and that's essentially all it is, is coming into this exact moment and, and learning how to do that with not only more and more accuracy, also more and more comfort. Those go together. 
and and to simply accept that um, okay, I'm flushed. I'm, I'm, my adrenaline is triggered by something that happened, as Ken was just talking about, and um, and that's who I am right now. Or okay, I'm badgering myself with thoughts about. Uh, I have a not original with me at all. One of my mantras is other people's opinion of me is none of my business. It's not because their opinion of me isn't helpful or, or, or right. It's because if I make their opinion of me my business, not only do I go crazy within seconds or, or less than a second, really, um, but more importantly, I'm definitely not in the now. I'm not present to them anymore. I'm totally preoccupied with David. Well, if they're trying to communicate with me, that's not especially useful. And 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 so um, I really do have that mantra, other people's opinion of me is none of my... Let, let me save you some time here, though. Um, I hopefully can. Um, other people's opinion of me is none of my business is my mantra. I have discovered that sharing that with the person that I'm listening to... <laughs> you do understand... Um, is really stupid. Uh, so if I can save you any time on learning how stupid it is, uh, I'm glad to do that. Uh, I tried it. Um, and uh, and it just, as Ken said, just to sit in silence. Just let, let God work. And that's the image that I use, is when I am in silence, I'm just letting my higher power, letting God work in my life. And, uh, and that's one of the most important tools I have. Um, let's... Other questions, responses, things, whatever. Uh, we will, because we're being recorded, we'll try to repeat it more or less accurately. Uh, so it'll be on the recording. I was just going to say, uh, uh, Ken's uh, uh, thing about uh, saying thanks for sharing, I don't know why that, that doesn't work for me that well. I mean, these people that are in the program, I tell them thanks for sharing. They're, they're, they, uh, they seem to think I'm being sarcastic. Yeah, the question was um, that for this person, that a response of thanks for sharing when someone says something to them, that, that sometimes it's felt that it's uh, received in a sarcastic way and not really genuine. Is that fair? Um, well, maybe you can change the terminology and just say, yeah, I can, I can, I can understand what you're saying. Which I can, you know, if I don't, I ask a question, frankly, you know, if I don't understand. And I don't, I don't say that to my wife directly that way. I'd say effectively that, which she knows, she's in program. So, uh, but I say something very similar to basically saying, I appreciate it. I don't have to answer anything, my point was. I don't have to offer an opinion. I don't have to solve their problem. That's really what I was trying to say. Thanks. Um, and I wanted to add something because it's something I realize I don't talk about enough, and um, and this opens it to it. Um, when we are um, about ten minutes old, ten minutes after birth, maybe fifteen, certainly in the first fifteen minutes, one of the things we learn is that voice tone is everything. That, that the tone of voice of the mother, of the nurse, of the doctor, whoever, is, it, it has everything to do with how it's going to go in the next few seconds. <laughs> and, and that awareness of voice tone literally goes into the moment we die. If, if you've been around death and dying kind of stuff, which is part of my occupation, um, people often say the last thing to go before we die is hearing. Well, whether that's true or not doesn't matter, but it, I mean, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but 
the voice tone thing is there, present all the way through our lives. And so that's one thing I try to be really aware of. It's, and I'm, I'm really, I'm obnoxiously sarcastic. It's, I'm really, people do not like me as a sponsor frequently. And I can't blame them at all. Um, and, um, and I have to watch voice tone frequently. And, and the other thing is fear of abandonment. That, uh, that comes in also in the first 15 minutes. If I'm not taken care of, that's the end. And that awareness never leaves us either. And anything that triggers either one of those, and thanks for sharing, can be said and come across in a way that triggers both of those. So, uh, other, Someone started to raise a hand over here. Um, Derek from Michigan. I have a question. Uh, I really enjoyed this a lot. There was one line that was said that I... It's always bothered me a little bit, and I wanted to just talk about it for a second. That's the line where, uh, you know, if life was fair, I should be... I hear it a lot in the program. People say I should be dead or in jail, or you said living under a bridge. And I feel like I feel like that sells us short a little bit, because I feel like that makes me feel like I'm a bad person. Um, I, just, I just... There's something about that statement that, I don't know... You know, if life was fair, I should be dead. I don't, I don't really believe that. Or if I should be in jail or I should be locked up. I don't, I don't believe that. I just I want to talk about it for a second. Uh, the question is uh, the, the phrase, you know, we, uh, if we got what we deserved, we, you know, we'd be dead or in trouble. One time I was talking to my wife, and I, I said something to the effect, as early in the program, I says, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a terrible person, I'm an evil person. She says, no, you're not. You've done some terrible things. And I think that's what we're trying to say, is that on my, on my own, I've done some terrible things. And if I were judged on those alone, in, in a relationship with my wife, there's no question, the balance is way off scale, that I've done more terrible things in my addiction than I've tried, to, and I'm trying to make that more even over the course of the rest of my life. But that's what I read into that. It isn't that I'm terrible, but what I've earned based on my actions is living under a bridge. And the only thing I would add, I think your question's right on the money. I think it's a really important question or hesitation, uh, Jari. And I think one of the reasons is, to me, that's pride. It's saying, I'm a better judge of what I deserve than God is. And that attitude has not served me well. <laughs> that's how I qualified for this program. And, and accepting that, you know, what my higher power, and the higher power may be the group, it may be the literature. I mean, some people aren't comfortable with God, I'm well aware. Um, and I was one of those for a while. And, um, and, and this, to not accept the way things actually are is just pride. And, and that's not helpful. So I think you're, you're right on the right track there, and personally. Maybe one more person and then we'll close. Yeah. How do you, um, trying to figure out how to process cease fighting with anything, anyone in a situation where someone is causing me or someone I love harm and loves them? So Harvey, if he hasn't told it already, what? Oh, yes, thank you. I appreciate it. How, um, cease fighting anything or anybody if someone's really doing something difficult, how do you respond to him? And uh, Harvey, I haven't heard him tell it yet, but he will, I'm sure he either has or will <laughs> sometime uh, in, before this conference is over. A story about a, a, a rabbi who would go by a store that was open uh, owned by a Jewish person it was open on Sabbath, and the rabbi would be so upset. And I'm shortening the story because Harvey's going to tell a lot better. But the essence of it is exactly what you're talking about. 
and um, and the rabbi would get in terrible fights with the shop owner, and the shop owner always had his uh, store open, and um, and then uh, the rabbi was so distressed he went to talk to another wise rabbi, and the rabbi said, "Well, have you told the shopkeeper you love him?" And the rabbi said, "I don't love him. I hate him, and I think what he's doing is terrible." And he said, have you told the shopkeeper you love him? Well, why would I do that? All he'll do is just respond and fight back more, and it'll just be even worse. Have you told the shopkeeper you love him? So the next time he went by the store, he stuck his nose, or opened the door, and and said, I just want to let you know how much I love you. And the shopkeeper responded very negatively, and... um, and to make a long story short, he'll tell it better. Um, in fact, after six months, the shopkeeper started <coughs> closing his door, closing his shop on, on Sabbath. And the point is that what we haven't tried is the exact opposite. It's my rule of 180, the exact opposite. I, I'm really, people do this to me all the time. It's not like your question is not relevant. And, and doing things that I really think are wrong and and if I'm willing to say, at least on the inside, I love you, I know you're doing the best you can do, I'm doing the best I can do, the best I can do is react emotionally to what you're doing and get, give myself a real adrenaline rush. In other words, I take responsibility in the now for how I'm actually reacting and try to stay out of judging them, which is tricky, I understand. Um, then I actually have a chance to respond in a different way, and that's, that's how I do it in practice. Do you want to add anything? We have one, two minutes. Okay. Um, this has been a wonderful session for me, me and for you. Thank you for coming. Um, anything you've heard at this meeting is strictly the opinion of the individual participant. The principles of essay are found in our 12 steps and 12 traditions. Uh, let's uh, form a circle because we can do it, and we'll close with the uh, seventh step prayer. We'll do it to the best of our ability. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.